In just a few short days, the government of Israel could begin formally annexing a significant portion of the West Bank in the occupied Palestinian territories. As the leader of an ecumenical and nonpartisan organization focused on advocating for a just and lasting end to the conflict in Israel-Palestine, I'm deeply worried annexation will entrench inequalities and abuses of Palestinian human rights. The impending threat of annexation of parts of the West Bank poses one of the greatest threats to possibilities of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. I'm May Cannon, and this is Hashtag Activism. What is annexation? In this case, annexation is referring to a pending decision by the government of Israel to take over complete control of parts of land in the territory known as the West Bank of the occupied Palestinian territories. The Jordan Valley on the West Bank of the Jordan River is one of the most targeted areas of land that has some of the richest resources and territorial value. The areas in question and under threat of annexation include plots of land where Israeli settlements have been built on land owned or designated by Palestinians, establishment of a Palestinian state. Concerns for a just peace and opposition of annexation should not be a partisan issue, but rather Democrats and Republicans should maintain policies that will ensure the U.S. can play a proactive and constructive role in bringing about a comprehensive and just end to the conflict in Israel and Palestine. Earlier this week, as a part of my commitment to speak out against annexation, I joined over 30 Christian clergy and leaders from across the country in letters to both the Republican and Democratic national committees. In the letter, we ask both political parties to adopt platforms related to Israel and Palestine that affirm both a commitment to Israel and its security and a commitment to Palestinian rights. The platform should include clear opposition to the ongoing occupation, settlement expansion, and any form of unilateral annexation of territory in the West Bank. The letter from Christian leaders is a part of a growing chorus of interfaith voices united in shared Jewish and Christian values, calling on both parties to take seriously the need to oppose annexation, settlement expansion, and the ongoing occupation. J Street, the pro-Israel, pro-peace organization, which has emerged as one of the strongest voices in the U.S. Jewish community opposing annexation, launched a campaign to ensure leaders in both parties hear loudly and clearly the call for platforms that emphasize an ongoing commitment to Israel alongside of a call for Palestinian rights, something that's been absent in previous iterations. Christians in the United States must stand alongside Jewish allies and others and oppose annexation. We must also call for an end to the ongoing occupation of the Palestinian people that's been in existence since 1967. Why do so many U.S. Christians and Jews oppose annexation? Put simply, annexation, settlement expansion, and occupation hurt both Israelis and Palestinians. While Palestinians bear the brunt of the harm, these policies actively work to discourage a peace process, create further fractures within Israeli and Palestinian civil societies, and contribute to regional instability that will make both Israelis and Palestinians less safe. And Palestinian Christians are particularly vulnerable to the impact of annexation. 
Without a change in policy and an end to the occupation, in coming years, the small yet powerful Christian community in the Holy Land might not remain in the place where our faith began. Here talking to us today about what life is like as a Palestinian Christian is pastor and leader Munther Isaac. Munther holds his PhD from the Oxford Center for Mission Studies and is the academic dean of Bethlehem Bible College in Palestine and director of Christ at the Checkpoint. He's also the pastor of Christmas Evangelical Lutheran Church in Bethlehem. He's the author of From Lands to Lands, From Eden to the Renewed Earth, a Christ-centered biblical theology of the promised land, and of a new book published by InterVarsity Press called The Other Side of the Wall, a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope. There is something profoundly wrong when, you know, Christians in general, but of course evangelicals as well, are willing to go the law, not just the, the international law, even the laws of a certain country, just to prove a biblical point, as if, you know, you know, that's the question always that Israel's right to the land trumps every law that was made by, by humans. And once we begin using this language as Christians, I feel we lose our credibility, we, use our, we lose our relevance, and ironically, you know, we will go crazy if Muslims use the same language. Okay, can you imagine if, for example, Arabia or any other Muslim-majority country invades another country and then says, well, the Quran says this is our land. We don't care for the international community. You know, evangelicals will go crazy over such an argument. But then it's perfectly fine to apply it on... Uh, so I applaud you for for insisting on holding the law. And I think that's that's something we cannot ignore. And, and let's not forget, you know, at the end of the day, this is part of our faith, you know, Romans 13 principle. Uh, unless, of course, the law is unjust. But argue with me about the specifications of the law, whether they are unjust or no, I think I, I would listen. And I think that's another issue, May, and I'm sure right. you will resonate with me. Many times those who criticize us will immediately try to cast doubt on our character rather on our arguments themselves. Every time I am in a debate and I, I say something and then immediately they start throwing these labels at me, uh, replacement theology and others, I immediately say, well, please, this is my book, read it and argue from it. Don't just throw labels at me to close the conversations. And I feel that many times that's what people do rather than engage with our arguments. I mean, I would hope that people, for example, would engage with the content of of your book, the, the stories you made, the, the uh, examples you, you bring, and, and engage with them rather than, as, as my experience has been most of the time, it's an immediate attack on the person herself or himself, you know, attack the messenger rather than the message. So some of the listeners of this won't be very familiar with some of the geopolitics, and they might associate this conversation with kind of preconceived ideas. And I'm going to, I don't mean to be offensive by asking this question, but I think it's an important one. So the only thing they will know about Palestine is Yasser Arafat, you know, prior to the days of 
his political leadership of the Palestinian Authority. And so they will equate uh, Palestinian with terrorist. And, you know, one of the pictures I have in my head is spending a fair amount of time with high school students in Bethlehem or Beit Zahor or other parts of Palestine. And the first thing the high school students tell us is, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm not a terrorist. Talk to us about that perception, that history, but what it's like today in the 21st century. You know, you live in the Bethlehem area. And does that association still exist? Where does it come from? And what's an appropriate Christian response to that to that question? Unfortunately, that perception still exists. And I am still shocked that it's still, the, you know, we're in the 21st century and people don't realize that Palestinian Christians exist, for example, or have never met a Palestinian, yet still build... Uh, whole perceptions about Palestinians in general. And usually we say, have you met a Palestinian? Have you been to to a Palestinian city, whether it's Hebron, Nablus, or Bethlehem? And one of the common things we hear repeatedly over and over again is the shock that people have when they visit our land and meet with Palestinians, uh, spend time with Palestinian families or just in any normal discussion and come back shocked and say, Oh, Palestinians are nice people. And, you know, to me, sorry, that's offensive. You know, of course we're nice people. What's what's the shock? What's the surprise here? Uh, but that's a reflection of a long uh, paradigm of thinking that, you know, equates the word uh, of us versus them. Those who are not like us cannot be nice as us, uh, as if that's the perception or that's the, the understanding. So why would anybody think that a Palestinian must be... Every country, every nation has its bad apples, I'm sure. I'm not saying that all Palestinians are angels and uh, and so on, but the whole process of stereotyping, even demonizing a whole nation, is very unchristian. It's very unchristlike. Uh, that's not how we reflect our Christian uh, stereotype and, and demonize uh, people. Um, I had to go through this process Sometimes even when, you know, we engage in conversation with, with Christians and present our perspective as Palestinian Christians, we get the impression or the response of those who listen to us, why didn't you, for example, criticize terrorism? Why didn't you uh, say something about the violence of Hamas? Why didn't you emphasize Israel's right to exist? And so what happens here is another way of, again, imposing a narrative on Palestinians. Basically, the message is, before I am even qualified to speak as a Palestinian, I must denounce, every time I speak, I must begin by saying I'm not anti-Semitic, I denounce terrorism, Israel has the right to exist, and only then I can speak. You know, these preconditions that are always put on us before we even begin speaking, again, that's very offensive to us, and that's very in a sense, dehumanizing, as if, you know, just because we're Palestinians, we have to distance ourselves from that. And of course, we have made all sorts of statements if people actually care to search about what we believe about these things. But, you know, again, it's it's the whole idea of labeling, characterizing people uh, to discredit the message. As you've been talking, I've had kind of memories Uh, coming back to me and some of my own experiences being blessed 
by Palestinian people. I don't know if you know, when I lived in Jerusalem, I was kind of adopted by a family. And so I have a Palestinian teta. I always blame the Palestinians, Munther. She fed me so much. She was always saying, hutti, hutti, you know, put more on your plate. <laughs> and, you know, she made this amazing food and practiced such incredible hospitality. And, you know, so I have these pictures. I have these pictures of her as a grandmother. And then I have this picture of a family that I was with whose home is right by the separation barrier, which of course the Palestinians call the apartheid wall and the Israelis call a security fence. And you know we can talk about that, but this family had just had their home demolished for the third time. Yeah. And the family in the midst of the rubble literally made us tea and served us out of the nothing that they had had. I mean, virtually everything that was in the home was destroyed. And so the hospitality is not just like a kindness type yes. of hospitality, but it's no. a warmth that's overwhelming. It's, yeah. it's honoring an honor code in our culture, which is hospitality. You cannot break that code. You cannot, uh, but always in all circumstances, uh, show hospitality. And that's precisely what that family uh, is doing. And yes, you know, what, what you shared is what many people share. I always challenge visitors who come to the Bible college and stay in the Bible college. I say in the night, I advise you to go walk in the streets on Bethlehem. And I'm willing to bet chances are very high you will end up in a house talking either about politics or religion. Because, you know, this is this is <laughs> our nature. We love to engage in conversation. We love to invite people to our homes. That's, that's part of our culture. So talk to us about you know, politics and, and religion. Specifically, you know, I just mentioned the wall. And one of the things that can be found in gift shops throughout Bethlehem are the nativities made out of olive wood, beautiful artistry, you know, ornaments for Christmas. But one of the nativity scenes actually has a wall in it that divides Jesus or Mary, I suppose, before Jesus was born from being able to get to Bethlehem. What's yes. this wall all about? And what are the realities of the politics that you live under? Yes. For us, when, when Palestinians do such uh, an art, or su this, this such an example is Palestinians, and particularly Palestinian Christian artists, trying to express our reality in artistic ways. And of course, you know, all these things, our art, our culture, faith and religion, but you have to understand that religion here is, is also related to our culture because Jesus is a Bethlehemite, you know. The nativity scene is, is in Bethlehem. So we're not trying to uh, offset something from outside into our uh, reality. Uh, and so Bethlehem today, if you talk to any Bethlehemite, he will say or she will say, uh, we live in a big prison. Because from one side, we're cut off from Jerusalem by the wall. And from the other, we're surrounded by uh, Israeli settlements. And I cannot overstate the impact, the psychological impact, of the fact that we cannot go to Jerusalem as, as Bethlehemites. You know, we're being cut from something that we feel ha we have a spiritual connection to, in addition, of course, to a strong economical connection. And, you know, I can still remember, and you might be surprised to know that, maybe because you've been visiting our land since the wall or after the wall, but I can still remember how we used to go just outside of our house in Beit Sahur, which is outside of Bethlehem, 
stop the bus from outside of our house and it takes us straight to Damascus Gate in 15 minutes. No checkpoints, no traffic, nothing. 15 minutes from our house, maybe sometimes 20, from Beit Sahur to Damascus Gate. And why did we used to go? Uh, we used to go for shopping, you know, to the, especially in the old city. So to think that now you need to go to a military base to apply for a special permit that only the privileged get, those who get the security approval of, of the state of Israel, as if, you know, those who behave well, or those who have some leverage, like uh, I work in a church and churches put pressure on the state, so they grant me the permission to go to Jerusalem. But to think that this is now a privilege rather than, you know, uh, our right in our homeland to go to our uh, to Jerusalem, the center of our faith, where we have spiritual connection, to think that now we cannot do that uh, unless we have a special permit is, is so disheartening, is so devastating. Uh, let alone the fact that, you know, the wall uh, took so much land. So the idea of be living in, in a big prison uh, is, uh, is something that many Palestinians will say. And so it's no surprise to see it expressed in arts, even if it's a, a religious art like the, the manger uh, said. And I think it's important for people to understand as you're talking about permits, you know, and you said, you know, some of the privileged or, or people who are good, quote unquote, I think it's really important for people listening to know that the permit system is incredibly discriminatory and that it's very difficult for young men, you know, in your age demographic to be able to get permits. So often a grandmother might get a permit and a mother, but not a father or a son. And so for families to be able to go to worship uh, in Jerusalem or just to shop or to see relatives who live you know, 10, 15 minutes away is made virtually impossible. And then if you can get a permit, you can't take your car. So the cost to be able to even travel there, you have to have someone meet you or, you know, just the travel logistics alone make it difficult, yeah. if not impossible. Yeah, the, the cost, the hassle, but also the psychological effects. Say, for example, and you know that very well, May, if you visit Bethlehem and you rent a car, that allows you to travel and cross as an American from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And if I try to ride with you at the checkpoint, they will stop you. They will allow you to go, but I have to go through the machines. I have to be searched. I have to go walk, stand online. And you know how it is. Could go take sometimes from five minutes to 30 minutes, even more. Uh, so yes, there is also the element of control uh, and an element in which there is discrimination. Let's say as it is, you know, we Palestinians have to go through the checkpoint, walking, get searched, but Americans and foreigners and Israelis don't have to go through the same thing. Right. So you have written this profound book um, that just came out this week, The Other Side of the Wall, A Palestinian Christian Narrative of Lament and Hope. What inspired you to write the book? Where did the book come from? Yes, uh, the book came from the desire to speak not just my story, because the book includes elements of my story, but the story of my people who have been for a long time marginalized and ignored, even silenced and cast on the other side of the wall. And I use the metaphor of the wall uh, to say that the, the wall is more than just the ugly physical concrete structure. The wall has always been there in the minds of, you know, Western theology and Western Christians who 
oftentimes, for the most of the time, speak about our land only from the perspective of Israel and the Jewish people, uh, as if Israel was established on an empty land, as if we don't exist. In the same way, the vast majority of pilgrims, Christian pilgrims who visit uh, the Holy Land, spend the vast majority of the time on the Israeli side of the wall. So I wanted to say there is another side of the wall. There are people on this side with a narrative, with a story, with faith, with struggles, uh, struggling even to, to stay, struggling to survive here. Stories of not just uh, uh, lament uh, and resilience, but also stories of hope. So I tried to kind of give voice to the Palestinian Christian community, our faith, our stories, through insights into my story, but at the same time, our sermons and, and, and the voices of many other Palestinian Christians that I try to uh, highlight in this book. Well, I think it's an incredible resource, and I'll highlight it you know, in the second part of this podcast as a way for people to be able to engage. So I'll cr- encourage people to pick it up. And it seems to me that it's an extension of the work that you've been in thus far. You know, So you've been leading the Christ at the Checkpoint conference, which is where I think I first met you back in yes. 2010 at the very first event. You know, I'm very proud. I was the first person to register for that way back in the day. <laughs> but tell us about Christ at the Checkpoint and, and what that's all about. And if I'm not mistaken, may you also led uh, the devotion in one of the days of the conference. And yes, I did. I the, did. the idea of Christ at the checkpoint came really, uh, we were trying to do two things. The first is respond to the questions, but also to the positions of many evangelical Christians, but more than just evangelicals. But to be honest, mainly in the beginning, our idea was to target evangelical Christians because of our connection at Bethlehem Bible College with the evangelical community, many would come and visit, even church groups, pastors, theologians. They would support our work when it comes to uh, preparing leaders for the ministry, for the kingdom. They would applaud our faith. But they will always make it a point to tell us that we are wrong theologically and politically because we have to side with Israel, even though we're Palestinians. Uh, and even though we have stories of land being confiscated from our families or people dying in wars or refugees or going through the trauma of the occupation, they would try to tell us we're on the wrong side and also we're on the wrong side theologically. Over the years, this led to many conversations. Sometimes they were in the form of lectures, workshops, or private conversation until uh, one of our uh, the leaders back then at the college, Alex Awad, came with the idea well, let's have a conference on this. Let's invite our evangelical friends and let's talk about the land. Uh, Let's talk about the theology of the land. But more than that, let's talk about reality on the ground. And so here is the second important component of Christ at the checkpoint. We wanted to think together with our evangelical sisters and brothers who come to support us. What is a a Christ-like, appropriate response to the conflict. What would Jesus say or do if he is to stand in front of a checkpoint today? Hence the idea, Christ versus a checkpoint, a conversation between our faith and our reality. And the reason from all of this is important. We want to 
challenge evangelicals to make a shift in the way they look at our land and, and, and the, the whole situation, rather than looking through the lens of prophecy and end time and eschatology, please look at the land through the lens of peacemaking, through the lens of justice, address the realities on the ground and help Palestinians and Israelis live in peace uh, together. So that's what we try to do in Christ at the Checkpoint through the form of five-day conferences that we've been doing every two years. Throughout these days, we have workshops, site visits, discussions, oftentimes discussions with those who hold a Christian Zionist position, all in the spirit of let's have this discussion at the checkpoint itself. So as you talk about the realities and what's a faithful Christ-centered response to the realities, one of the threats that is right on the precipice is not only the ongoing occupation, which has been in existence since 1967, but the further annexation of parts of the West Bank. And so I think you know, Munther, at Churches for Middle East Peace, we have a campaign throughout the United States states called Churches Against Annexation, where we're calling on Christians and churches to actively engage in the political question and to call on the U.S. government to oppose any annexation. And I know that there's conversations, of course, about the de facto annexation of, you know, the Israelis have control over Area C and in large part all of the West Bank. But what would be your words of what the threat imposes? You know, what's wrong with the annexation? What's problematic about it, let alone the fact that it's illegal by international law, which is kind of where we started from, you know, several minutes ago. But talk to us about the implications of annexation for Bethlehem, for you, for the Palestinian people. This is a very, very serious issue for us because most likely annexation will put a very, very big blow to the, not just the two-state solution, the idea of Palestinians having the dream of nationhood and independence, uh, but then create a reality on the ground that can be only described using the words apartheid, discrimination. Gated communities where Palestinians live inside the cities only and Israel controls everything outside of the city without any geographical continuity between our communities other than a road that is controlled by Israel. It gives, it puts an end to any possible uh, natural expansion of our communities because the annexation will mean that Israel will basically confiscate every land that surrounds our city. And I think of what will happen to Bethlehem, where uh, many Christian families will think there is no future for us here. We cannot expand, we cannot build, we cannot develop our communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, and end up leaving. Because at the end of the day, you get tired from crossing checkpoints just to go from one Palestinian community to the other, from Bethlehem to Ramallah, from one Palestinian city to the other, from Bethlehem to Hebron, from Bethlehem to Jericho. And oftentimes these checkpoints, of course, uh, many incidents and people die on these checkpoints or so on. So really the annexation on the day-to-day experience of Palestinians, including Palestinian Christians, will really cause an existential uh, a threat, a threat to our existence, really. And that's why, and I thank you for really being very vocal on this, and that's why every church leader, the heads of the churches in Jerusalem, evangelicals, 
Protestants, Catholics uh, have spoken against the annexation and have spoken in strong language that this is extremely dangerous. And I thank God that many Christian, you know, leaders, church leaders, church bodies have also joined us. And again, I thank uh, SEMA for the work they're doing. Yet at the same time, it remains incredibly frustrating and uh, uh, shocking to me. The excitement of the big portion of the evangelical community about this. I'm not saying everybody, of course, but the fact that many would say, we don't care what Palestinian Christians think. We don't care what the heads of the churches in Jerusalem think. We don't care about the ecumenical partners or the church bodies. We know what's right. We don't care about the international law. We don't care of what threat this will put on the peace process or on the future of Palestinian Christians. We're right and everybody's wrong. And I, I cannot for the mind of me understand this, this mentality. And going back to what you were saying um, several minutes ago, for people who've been there, who've traveled to the Palestinian territories, met Palestinian people, but even for geopolitical experts, there's no question about what's happening. And so I would actually cite one of the former members of President Trump's cabinet, the former Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, said exactly what you said, Munther, about apartheid. He said, if there's further confiscation, if the occupation continues, you know, an annexation wasn't on the table when he was at the Department of Defense, the way that it is in this particular moment. But he said, if this continues, this is nothing but apartheid. And most people don't know that. I mean, he's a general who, you know, it was working for a Republican uh, administration. And so I think in that regard, one of the things I really want people to hear is this is not just a polemic advocacy campaign that's elevating the rights and aspirations of the Palestinian people in any way, shape or form over their Jewish neighbors or you know, the aspiration of Israeli citizens, be they Palestinian or Jewish Israeli citizens, that this is actually fundamentally issues of international law, human rights and equality where the Palestinian people for decades have been living under oppression and occupation. And, and this is fundamentally about the injustice and oppression of the Palestinian people. Confining us within cities or communities, crowded ones, and making, as I said, linking uh, these cities with a road that Israel controls. I mean, it's so dehumanizing of, of Palestinians. Yes, it is going to create a very unhealthy, a very dangerous situation. And again, my fear is that this will ultimately, from one side, uh, for sure it will not lead to peace. It will only lead to more unrest. And of course, as always, we will be blamed as Palestinians. And my fear is that this will explode one day into more chaos and violence. And my fear as a Christian leader that our land will be emptied of its Christian population, especially in the Bethlehem area where most Christians live. I mean, if the idea is to turn the Holy Land into what we said, a Zionist Christian fairyland, where you only come to say, oh, this is the lake where Jesus, you know, was on a boat in, in Galilee, or this is Nazareth where Jesus lived, or this is Bethlehem, and not care about the Christian community, or if even there will be a Christian community in the future, and just treat our land as a fairy land. As a, I think it's, again, it's, it's very sad. 
Uh, it's very, it's, it's a very, very serious issue that we're facing. This is not just, you know, we're complaining about, you know, a certain unjust law that can be translated into a gray area. As you said, Mayan, thank you for that. It's clear cut, not just unlawful, but also unjust. And so with your pastoral identity leading the Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church of Bethlehem, many of the people listening are followers of Jesus or self-identify as Christian and evangelical even. What would be your word to them? What's your word to Christian in the United States? My word is that you cannot continue to ignore our presence our existence and our message and voice. You cannot continue to ignore our opinion on things because these things impact our daily lives. I mean, if you truly consider us your sisters and brothers, you have to take our position and message seriously, especially when we say that we're talking about something that might pose a threat to our existence. Our message will be come say and then go and make a judgment for yourself come and engage with us come to the other side of the wall if i might borrow an expression from my book uh, come to our side of the wall listen to the story from from our experience see for your own hand what it your own eyes what it means to lose a land that you've lived in and inherited that you farmed and inherited for many many years where you have your homes and all your memories you know, and, and, and I would also say, I, w- I would challenge my evangelical sisters and brothers, what's the gospel for, for the Palestinians? If that's the message you have for us that, you know, sorry, you've been living here for hundreds, if not more of years, but this is a prophetic time you have to leave. I mean, seriously, or this is a prophetic time, God is fulfilling prophecy, you have to live as a second class citizen. So my message is, please I plead with you, step into our side of the wall. See the experience as we live it. Walk in our shoes and help us keep a Christian presence here. And and remember, and you said it very well, this is not about excluding or denying or destroying Israel. This is not about willing to kill every Jew or destroy Israel. No, no, I mean, at the end of the day, we have said it over and over, whether it's our political leaders, but Here I'm saying about our church leaders. Our vision is one of coexistence. Our vision is one of, as I articulate in my book, sharing the land. If I may even borrow from uh, Martin Luther King, my dream is to see a day in which my children will have Israeli friends and together they will play at the table of, of, of brotherhood. But right now we have occupation. Right now we will have annexation and this will not make this possible. So, yeah, that that will be my message to, to my fellow evangelical sisters and brothers. There are so many things that we can do to support Christian leaders like Munther Isaac in Palestine and to be constructive advocates for a just peace between Israelis and Palestinians. If you're just getting started and maybe don't know some of the issues that this episode's talked about, take a look at my chapter in Beyond Hashtag Activism that provides an introduction to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'd also encourage you to read and engage with Monther's book, The Other Side of the Wall, A Palestinian Christian Narrative of Lament and Hope. 
If you visit my website at www.maycannon.com, InterVarsity Press provided a discount for listeners of this podcast. Consider traveling to the Holy Land to visit Israelis and Palestinians and to learn more about what their lives are like. Christ at the Checkpoint, the conference that Munther talked about in Bethlehem, will be happening again in June 2021. Send an email to info at cmep.org if you'd like to join Churches for Middle East Peace on a pilgrimage that includes that event. We'd love to have you join us. And one of the ways Christians and others can engage in opposing annexation is by joining Churches for Middle East Peace in their Churches Against Annexation campaign. You can visit the website www.cmep.org to find out more information. One of the actions you can take is print out a graphic of Churches Against Annexation, that's the hashtag that the movement's using, and post it on your social media. Direct your picture and comments to your elected officials. The United States has a moral responsibility to promote human rights, justice, and peace, both at home and abroad. In order to do so effectively, both the Democratic and Republican parties must adopt platforms on Israel and Palestine that will seek to bring both parties together instead of encouraging conditions that will only sow further discord. And your elected officials need to hear from you about why annexation is so problematic for both Israelis and Palestinians. With the annexation looming, the facts on the ground are certainly discouraging. However, My spirit is renewed by the efforts of Christians and Jews in the United States to come together to call our leaders to pursue policies that are rooted in justice and equality for Palestinians and Israelis. Stories of the fortitude of people like Munther and so many others should encourage our spirits. Let us commit to praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Holy Land. The prophet Micah reminds us that at all times, God calls us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. May these efforts to call for a more holistic approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in party platforms in the U.S. government, may they push us closer to the justice and kindness that God envisions for all people. Much of the content from our conversations during episodes of Hashtag Activism come from my upcoming book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age, out with InterVarsity Press on May 26th. You can pre-order your copy today at a local bookstore like heartsandmindsbooks.com or wherever books are found.